I'm Amal Sarva, and this is In the Know. We continue a new series, the first episode, Longevity. 2020 made us all think about mortality, whether it was personal and the most tragic human loss of life, or business and our projects, our friendships. On this episode, I've got a great friend, Sergey Young, who will help us think about the opposite, immortality, longevity, and his new book, Growing Younger. I'm so excited to talk to Sergey and learn the secrets of a life that we will live, living to 120, 150, or longer. How? And what does it mean? Listen in. Welcome, Sergey Young. You're my new friend, my old friend who's a new friend, and I guess it must be because you're growing younger every day. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look amazing, I have to tell you. you. Since the first time we met five, six years ago, I think you actually do look five, six years younger. The beauty of working in longevity field, you couldn't really afford to look old or look unhealthy. So there's just a lot of motivation. Like every morning when I have an option to go for unhealthy path or healthy, I'm just taking healthy path. Yeah, you have the brand. There's a lot of vegetables. Yeah, you need to fulfill the promise. Well, it's funny because Aubrey de Grey, who maybe is the most famous researcher on the topic of longevity, his strategy is the opposite. I mean, yeah, this guy's exactly. beard is longer exactly. than the height of your child, probably. Yeah, the first time I met Aubrey, it was downtown San Francisco. It was Monday, 12 p.m., and he already started to drink beer in conversation with me. I was really shocked because I always thought, like, I mean, if you do longevity stuff, you need to behave the same way. But what I found, there's a number of people whom I know in the space, like Aubrey de Grey or Alex Javaronkov, the guy who works on use of AI in drug development. He has an amazing business goal in silicon medicine. They like drinking Coke. They're not necessarily focusing on exercises, etc. Because they believe that we're going to solve this problem in the next 10, 20 years anyway. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to invest in the lifestyle changes. I see. And this is one of the fundamental things we can talk about with your book, which I think is so amazing. Um, You've called it Growing Younger. Yeah, the science and technology of growing young. The science and technology of growing young. And some of this is inside out and some of it is outside in. And I think you're pointing out one of the big contrasts in the field at the moment. And actually with this same topic, we're touching another big contrast in the field. It's the sort of the wise man guru but then also sort of the icon, the kind of image who you want to aspire yeah. to be like versus the person who's telling you, oh, here's my yeah. you know, wise learnings and yeah. all that. And so I'm interested to come to these topics with you, but we have to start with who you are and where you mm-hmm. came from. I mean, when I met you first a few years back, I was building a company, you're running a big investment fund, your business, business, business. I mean, we have yeah. some overlapping past. Yeah. We were both with McKinsey and we're yeah. doing PowerPoints and spreadsheets and all this. And a few years after that, I meet you and you say, I've become massively interested in longevity, maybe even immortality. Tell me about where you come from and how you come to this point. Mm. Okay, so for the last 20 years, I've been doing investing. And what I found is, uh, well, first of all, it's, it's a very interesting mission and it's a very interesting job because you have an opportunity to meet a lot of interesting people, like when we met just a few years ago. And it's always it's just a huge portfolio of different interests. So then what has happened is a few years ago, I had my high cholesterol level identified in the blood test. And um, they just wanted me to take statins, like the special kind of the drugs which lowers cholesterol, for the rest of my life. Hmm. And I thought, and I'm insecure overachiever. This is like a typical McKinsey thing. 
I thought, well, I need to fight for that. And I, I didn't want to really accept the fact that I, I'm just going to be putting a medical or chemical substance inside my body every day for the rest of my life. Because for me, it was like a sign of weakness. And then, my, so my question was, what's the alternative? And apparently, alternative uh, sounds very attractive, like changing your diet, changing your physical exercise routines, uh, sleeping more, working more with doctors to identify the risks of uh, like cancer, heart disease at earlier stage, and uh, you meditate. Uh, so I thought it's just beautiful thing to change. And and finally, I had an excuse to refocus of my lifestyle and the way I live and the way I look. In the course of six months, uh, I achieved exactly the same result uh, in comparison to what if I would be taking these drugs. And I was so impressed. So I started to share all, you know, all this experience with my friends. I sent a few of them to do their annual uh, medical checkup. And uh, there was a couple of success stories when they identified early stage cancer. And these days, unlike 20 years ago, if you know that you have cancer at very early stage, your recovery rates are almost 100%. It's actually from 93 to 100% to be precise, depending on the type of the cancer. So people call you and say, well, Sergey, you saved my life. True, in a way, because without me, they would just not do this test, like this diagnostic of early stage cancer. And, and obviously, like stage four cancer is, the recovery rate is pretty low, like below 30%. So that's, that's a pity. So, and then when you receive a couple of calls like that, you feel that you find your mission. Now you just want to continue saving people's life, changing people's life uh, for the rest of your life. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to change one million. Then I, I met a couple of my friends, including Peter Diamantis, saying, Sergey, changing one million lives? Go for billion. It's the same <laughs> incremental effort. Oh, and I thought, okay, well, that's great. But, but the beauty of having this mission of changing million lives by bringing affordable and accessible version of healthcare is that it, it just brings a lot of discipline and focus. So I'm, I'm really, you know, everything I do, I'm thinking about the impact. How can I reach out to as many people as possible to make sure they see the opportunity to bring change in their life and live more healthy and, and happy years? So it's more than just the typical midlife crisis. Some guy, <laughs> successful in life, high achiever, doctor tells him, oh, you can't eat any more steaks, and you say, forget about it. I won't take that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat it. Uh, no, it's, it's different. So I'm father of four. As an investor, I'm, I'm always saying I'm the founder of a diversified portfolio of four kids. I kind of miss this whole midlife crisis because with four kids, you're so busy day and night so you don't even have time to think about like you know what's the purpose of, you know in life do i need to rethink in where i'm funny thing is that i've never had a, like a passion or the purpose in life because i'm from very poor family from people say middle of nowhere i'm actually from the end of nowhere my hometown was closer to Japan. It was 200 miles across the Japanese sea. It was former Soviet Union. Like uh, Novosibirsk yeah, or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's regional capital called Vladivostok, which is next to South Korea, Japan and China, was 500 miles away. And it was USSR. I was just looking at the world map in my room, which I shared with my brother. Well, I was just dreaming to travel to US, go to Vatican, like the smallest country, country on earth, visit Japan, I always knew that 
within the Soviet Union framework, the maximum I can do like Poland, follow it like for the week by KGB guy, and then uh, apparently this whole thing changed, and then it's become the world of opportunity. So I moved to Moscow. I started to work full time and study full time because both of my parents lost jobs. So I became an adult just one day in the age of 20 when my parents called me up and said, Sergey, we've been helping you as a student. Now it's your time. Uh, it's very unfortunate, but we, we both of us just lost our job overnight. And, uh, and my first job was actually, I was uh, cleaning skyscrapers, like a windows of skyscrapers <laughs> from the outside. It was so scary, but like the fear of uh, starvation and responsibility that I now got for my parents and my brother was uh, stronger than that. Amazing. I mean, so it's like the fire that was started inside you looking at yeah. that map and then yeah. the, the, the pressure that you had to achieve it on your own. No one handed you these things. But I mean, the transformation into um, like a spokesman and role model and priest of longevity, I mean, that that's a lot more than just a few months of reading a few books. I mean, I think a lot of people have had a moment where they think, okay, I want to get healthy, you know, especially this last year, 2020, people are sitting at home and they're thinking, oh, let me fix my life, change my life. But you found yourself now in a spot where you felt compelled to actually sit down and write a book about all the different things you had learned. I mean, talk to me about that transformation. You're just some business guy who's saying, hey, eat healthy. Is that all, is that all it is? <laughs> Sorry. No, it's not that. Okay, so uh, remember, there was a point of time when I wanted to make change. And uh, if you want to change one billion lives, it's, it's actually pretty challenging, right, how you want to do it. Um, oh, are you kidding me? I mean, that's an understatement. Yeah. I mean, it's like massively ambitious in yeah, a way that is. few it people is. ever... Yeah. So it's like super difficult. So I was very thoughtful about how I can change that. So one, I set up Longevity Vision Fund. So, and I thought, like, the, the biggest thing that I can do to support the space is just give dollars to entrepreneurs to scientists, to people who work on technology, to make sure we have a completely different version of healthcare, more digital, more efficient, less expensive. And um, so I thought I'll just set up like a small $50 million fund, and uh, it's going to be like the best thing for me to open up the space. Rather than reading you know, newspapers and media, it's just easier to do it that way. So I raised my first $50 million in the first five minutes. And again, this all insecure over cheer thing, okay, and I thought, okay, it should be like different. It should be 100 million fund. So obviously it was more difficult, but then I raised $100 million. This is not my money. This is money of investors who trust me and would like to uh, change the world. So, uh, fun. what's the biggest uh, door opener? And eye opener as well, because we're looking at 200 companies a year to invest in 10 of them. Well, it's just amazing information flow. I mean, the level of insight that you're getting from spending literally not minutes, like hours with people on their labs or visiting their startups, uh, it just it completely changed my life. So it's a unique point of view. And for context, I mean, at that point, you're already running a massive fund, yeah. investing across a huge yeah. diversity of you know real estate and energy and do. technology. So I have, as I'm always saying, I have you know, two shifts and two jobs. So one is during daytime, I'm like this boring private equity manager, manager managing a few billion dollars of different assets uh, all around the world from Europe to US and in Asia as well. 
and it's so many different industries like metals and mining, food retail, real estate, real estate development. But then during my nighttime, uh, this is my moonlight and my moonshot. Uh, yeah, I'm just doing this longevity investments, and and it was, it's really amazing to feel that you can actually support the space not only with words but also with uh, funding and a piece of experience. So we invested in 16 companies already and four of them are public. And it was like the fastest transformation from private to public I've ever seen in any of my portfolios. So two years and what quarter of the fund is already public. And we expect in three more IPO by the end of this year. Wow, talk to yeah. me about some of these success stories. Yeah. I mean, that's phenomenal, right? When you're in a space that everyone else is hunting, Mm -hmm. and fighting hard commodities or real estate, it's hard to find an edge. But then you find this kind of incredibly inspiring mission, and then you think you might be crazy, you're kind of alone, you're the only longevity yeah. fund that I've That's ever true. heard of. That's true. And then all of a sudden, is, these companies are, are just massively successful. So talk to me about something. Yeah, this is, that's a great point. So $100 million in financial industry terms is nothing. That's the reality. So when we committed $100 million to a change in longevity space, people thought we are crazy. And uh, at some point, and we still are, like one of the largest, the largest longevity-focused fund in the world. But that reflects not necessarily how wise we are, but uh, how immature the space is. So no one thought in, in the context of longevity, because the whole system works uh, you know, disease by disease. And there's no regulatory framework actually to invest in longevity and nature reversal. So we end up with investing in biotech with a huge side effect of extending human healthy and happy lifespan and health span. So that's the idea. But we had some amazing investments there. Like the company called like Genesis, they're based in Pittsburgh. And what they do, they regrow artificial organs inside our own body in our lymph nodes. That's amazing because you know, think about liver transplantation today. You need to wait six, nine, 12 months. A lot of people die actually in the process of just waiting for donor liver. And it's $800,000 procedure. And um, the success rate of that is not that high because your body thinks it's a foreign organ and it's switched on autoimmune rejection. Uh, so what these guys do is they split donor liver in 50 or 70 pieces. And so they can help 50 to 70 patients. And they just use very simple laparoscopic operation to put this nucleus of new liver inside your lymph node. And then it regrows in the course of three to six months, supporting your uh, dysfunction in liver to performance function. There's this so just a number of fascinating facts about this. Just one of these facts that I haven't realized that actually your kind of liver B uh, stops to grow exactly at the point when it's fulfilling the function to the extent which is needed by composition of your body. That's so like, that was one of my questions. But this, uh, this is just amazing. And, and again, this is the opportunity to transform the, the whole sector, right? Because with the ratio of organ donors to recipients is at least one to 10. And if you look all over, all over the world, um, it's uh, one to 20. So there's a huge problem of, uh, in that. Uh, what I also like about companies that we're investing, they change in healthcare, they uh, do improvement by 20 to 50, not percent, but times. So it's always the factor of, like whatever technology we invest in, is like 10, 20, 
50 times cheaper and at least as efficient as current solution. Like we invested in a company that based in Bay Area called Echo Imaging. And um, they, uh, what they're doing is an uh, affordable version of ultrasound device. This is the size of the iPhone. And um, the cost of it is 50 times less than the bulky ultrasound device that you have in the hospital next door. Um, so you can do a scan, even you can do it at home for it's suitable for telemedicine and uh, everything goes to cloud. Then artificial intelligence pre-analyze your scans and doctor or nurse receive like almost fully completed uh, report on you. And that's again 50 times cheaper than, than current ultrasound device. And the final thing, the uh, final company that I wanted to cover as well called Freenom. They're similar to Grail in terms of the problem they're trying to solve its early diagnostic of uh, cancer through liquid biopsy which is your basically blood test and uh, even I've just done my annual medical checkup last week on Tuesday in San Diego in uh, Human Longevity Center the colon cancer test called Cologuard is uh, is $19 test one night it's just amazing like whatever the alternative I would have in my hospital to identify this it's invasive procedure under sedation. I'm always like deferring that and trying to avoid that. Just $19. And of course, for the set of like 20 tests, you pay $100. This is so insignificant. And it's as precise as any other methods that we used before. So combination of full body MRI and this Cologuard test, it's just, uh, it's amazing in terms of my ability to catch cancer so early that you know, I can basically cure that pretty easy. It brings up an important contrast, and it's, I'm sure, one that people are already thinking about as we're talking. The difference between healthcare or even radical healthcare technology and longevity. Really not so different, right? I mean, it's, is it just a marketing name to say, oh, I'm focused on longevity? I mean, isn't that what healthcare tries to do? It tries uh, to extend people's lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a number of things around this. Uh, I, I do believe, like, we have intentionally broad definition of longevity. So whatever increase lifespan, average lifespan and health span, which is productive stage of your life on earth, we call it longevity. So therefore, this is like the best version of medicine and healthcare that we should have for ourselves. Yes, it is. And then, so that's one. Two is longevity is a funny word anyway. And, and people are very binary about that. So to my surprise, 60 to 70 percent of people depending on the country like us and uk as an example is uh, 65 to 70 percent of people in us and uk would say no to any life extension opportunity so even if you say can we i mean if this is possible would you like to add 10 to 20 healthy and happy years to your life people say no and it's again i'm still need to figure out why is that happening I want to get into this with you. I mean, this, to me, in the book, which is an amazing book, and you were kind enough to share it with me even a few months back when it was still just PDFs and all that, and I was looking over it in the last few days before we were speaking. Really good book, and I haven't actually seen someone pull together so many of the issues. And, of course, one of the most important issues that you just raised now is people are uncomfortable somehow when you say life extension, you say longevity, or even if you're so bold as to say something like immortality, for example, Kurzweil will talk yeah. about this kind of notion, he this kind of that. digital immortality. I mean, people freak out about it. And, you know, it connects a lot to things that I've spent time in my past thinking about. I am, you know, I used to be an academic philosopher. 
and I have a PhD in philosophy, I studied at Columbia and at Stanford, and I, these were the kinds of issues that people have been debating actually for 5,000 years. You know, life, death, life after death, and then perhaps rebirth, and what are the notions of identity and all these things. And as you start feeling these things to be tangible, people start complaining. If you save their life, they're happy, but if you offer them a magic solution to live an extra 30 years, they say, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Such a complex and strange set of ethical questions it also, is, right? It is, and for me, I, I even have a chapter uh, in a book called The Morality of Immortality. And the whole, my whole topic and, and the motto, I just done a TEDx talk on, on that. The premise is, we have created science and technology to extend our lives, but we haven't created life that we want to extend. And that's shocking in a way. There's so many moral and ethical issues that we need to solve for this world before we actually embrace the idea of living longer. And it's just, it's just a lot of different things. And some of them are really like a broad, general, philosophical nature. So if we're going to live 120 years, well, let's take this figure. Because the oldest person on the planet died in the age of 122. This Beautiful Just French recently. Woman. Yeah, in 1999, she was actually smoking until uh, the year 117. Well, this actually shows you that centenarians that we have today, they've just been lucky in genetic lottery. So this is the model of aging that we, we have at the moment. And it's not going to be uh, in the future. So if we're all going to live 120 or 150 years, what will happen with our life? Would it be like a several mi beautiful mini-lives? What will happen with our careers? Can we have as many careers as uh, decades in our life. What will happen with our kids? Like, would it be okay to have multiple generations of kids and how you can kind of relate to all of that? Or marriages, right? Two-thirds of marriages going through divorce in the first five years after wedding, uh, at least in the US, in the UK, and, and I'm pretty sure that statistics all around the world, is, is this figure is uh, probably anywhere between five and seven years, just five and seven years after. People often point to changes in our society these last 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. and they say, oh, it's something changing in our attitudes or some kind of cultural forces that are moving, perhaps. But very rarely do people mention in 1900, the average life expectancy was maybe less than 50, yeah. and by the year 2000, it had grown by 45 years or something like that, where people yeah. can live yeah, uh, 75, 80 years. We just doubled our lifespan in the last um, 120 years. So if you look at 1900, it was somewhere around 35. Mm. Right now, it's somewhere around 75. So, but no one had a dialogue like, would we want to extend our life? But they, the, the funny thing is that we've been increasing uh, the average lifespan just by avoiding early death including infant deaths, uh, but the maximum lifespan was still there. It was still around 120. I see. These genetic lottery winners back in 1900 or yeah. in 2000 or 2020, yeah. they're still hitting this 120. Yeah. The average was just coming closer to what we have exactly. previously perceived. Exactly. But is it possible then? I mean, when you talk about longevity, give me an order of magnitude that we ought to be mm -hmm. thinking about. I mean, are we living in a time now where you and me, who were born you know, 40, 50 years ago, might expect to live to 120, 150? Are we living in a time where children born today should be expecting to live to 150, 170? Yeah. How much is that expansion so, going to continue? Um, I'm not sure to what extent we, uh, our age group, which is like 40, 40, 50 years old, will be able to enjoy the benefits of all these longevity technologies, which is coming on the horizon. But we need to be prepared to live longer or much longer than we expect. So I don't think it's 85 years old anymore. 
it should be anywhere between 100 and 120 years. That I'm pretty sure about this. So, and then that's actually change your attitudes or your to planning your life. So what about your finances? How do you think about retirement? Like my father, when he was 50, he was just dreaming about retirement in five years time. And he was like, you know, not an active man afterwards. Funny enough, actually, your, your year of birth and year of retirement are two most dangerous years in your life in terms of mortality rates. When you retire, you just lose so many important things for you, like socialization, sense of belonging to organization, relevance, people die. So like one of the illustrations here, I do think we need to be less binary, less black and white about retirement. So think about the flexible working models, like you know, being on the board of a company or you know, helping a pro bono organization and certain capacity as well. So I do think we just need to plan through much longer life cycle. And this has a lot of implications for, you know, how you plan your finances, how you plan your career, how you structure your life. But this is why people, I guess, are uncomfortable because there is a kind of moral weight to the customary mm -hmm. patterns of life. You work for a while, and then when your children are working, at some point you expect that you won't be working, and then they might be supporting you, and now you're in your mm -hmm. old age. It's a shocking idea that you might have a child because you're age 80, and you mm -hmm. have a child who's 60, and one who's 40, and one yeah. who's 20, and one who's yeah. maybe even yeah. two or three years old. Oh, I mean, is that really well, possible? I mean, this is crazy. So I've just done the back of envelope calculation. Like, if I'm going to celebrate my 150th birthday anniversary, if I would invite my immediate family and friends, it's going to be 15,000 uh, people party. Oh Even God. like, think about real estate. Like, what's the implication of real estate? You know, do I need to rent like a stadium or what? Look, but things are changing. Change is important feature of our life. So I just want to raise these topics for people to have an opportunity to think about this proactively rather than being hit by unexpected news that we all going to believe uh, longer. Having said that, I'm all, I, I do think that uh, the first time when we can check whether we can break this sound barrier of 122 year, years, going to be when. So you would need to extend the life of someone who is 50 or 60 years old. So that's going to be like 60 years from now. And then 60 years from now, we're all going to be completely different. You know, even thinking, what if we would have this conversation in 1990? We couldn't really imagine, like, what the life looks like in 2021. So that's why yeah, I do believe that we really we don't know what we don't know, but we should be expecting serious progress in life extension and our ability to live longer, healthier, and happier life in the next few decades. That's a theme that goes throughout your book, actually, and I think it's one of the very powerful arguments that we're talking about big blocks of time. And this is not the only variable changing over 50 mm. years. Oh, yeah. The fact that someone's living longer, well, a lot of other institutions and norms and patterns in our lives are changing. You know, by the time you get to that birthday party 75 <laughs> years from now with 15,000 people, there's so much else has changed. They themselves have seen the world, and it has moved quite gradually, I suppose, over time. When you mention the sound barrier, I think what you mean is when our average life expectancy hits 120, yeah. and that's quite some time from now. But I suppose it's every day, every month, every year that we have a chance that someone hits 123, 124, that some of these, what are some of the milestones that you've been seeing just in this last 10 years that are giving you so much conviction that the trend continues? Because often in the technology and productivity world, an argument this last 10 or 20 years was, well, we had an incredibly productive 1900 to 2000. The 20th century, we changed a lot. 
but things aren't changing so much anymore. This is a classic skeptic <laughs> argument about change in productivity. But I think you're saying, no, it continues. But why do you think that? It's basically intersection of so many breakthroughs in science and technology. And finally, we are at the moment of time of our evolution when we have both the science and technology in place. Like 20 years ago, human genome wasn't even sequenced. And well, it was for the cost of $3 billion and six years in a row. Right now, it's just $200 procedure and literally a couple of days. So that's, that's important. We finally, first time in our history, we understand our genetic setup. And first time in our history, we are able and we will be able even to the greater extent to modify our genes and create a different version of ourselves. So in the last 10 years, we increased the number of longevity genes. So knowledge of the genes which are responsible for healthy longevity in your body. Uh, and we, right now, I think it's increased from 300 to 3,000 genes. Well, that's pretty much it that you need to focus on to avoid age-related diseases, to change yourself. Actually, I do believe that in 10, 20 years' time, like the biggest obstacle for gene editing and gene therapy is not going to be science or technology. It's going to be ethics and regulation. Uh, that's why I do believe that now we have all the components to create technology, and there's a number of technologies uh, uh, just in development. And the list is long, extend. right? I mean, whether it's CRISPR or oh, some yeah. of these very lightly invasive techniques like you're talking about, I mean, the idea of a second liver is amazing. And yeah, so like organ regeneration is just amazing. And it's, it's, it goes through like 3D printed organs. We're still at pretty early stage there to like longevity in the appeal. Right now we have a number of drug candidates who can qualify as um, age reversal pills. And one of the most interesting one is a drug called metformin. It's a generic drug, so it's been here for the last 50 or 60 years, and it's meant to treat uh, people with uh, diabetes. And uh, I, I'm not suggesting people to kind of run to their doctors and the pharmacy and buy metformin, but the funny thing, we, we started next year, we're starting together with the American Federation of Aging Research. We started a huge trial, 5,000 people in the course of four to five years to see if it actually works in terms of your life extension. And apparently, I do believe the outcome will be it's plus two or plus four healthy and happy years uh, to your life. That's amazing. So I love anecdotes, like interesting facts. So the interesting fact that like for every trial, you need like metformin and placebo. So placebo is actually more expensive for this trial than metformin. Think about this. I, I love the science and technology and the fact that we can do everything in, this, is in a much cheaper way. But like the most promising thing for me is everything in the field of genetic and gene therapy. Like we know CRISPR, but in the last 10, 15 years, there's so many different technologies that we invented. Like CRISPR is like genetic scissors, right? You actually need to cut the DNA. And in some of the cases, you just put a new piece of DNA there. Since that, we thought about um, uh, epigenetic reprogramming when you can actually silence some of the genes. Like, so you don't need to cut DNA, right? Because it's a risk for a lot of mistakes and downside effects. You can actually silence certain genes or you can use a viral vector to put proteins in your cell, which will do the same. And think about this, like 15, 20 years ago, gene editing was the thing for 
you know, just a couple of people, like 10 of the people around the planet with extremely rare genetic disease. Then we move to use of gene editing and gene therapy in so-called rare diseases. And uh, they're not that rare. 400 million people on Earth are suffering from so-called rare diseases. And then recently, like Moderna vaccine, is uh, is a typical example of gene therapy, which is we tend not to think about this. Yeah, I mean it's an amazing. So now it's all applicable to that, and like even my high cholesterol problem, it's a problem for forty percent of people on the planet. And now we have a drug. I just don't want to use their name, which is gene therapy drug, which lowers your cholesterol with application once every six months. I think the point about the, the Moderna-style RNA vaccines is a wonderful point. At, at this point, I think more than a billion people have now had gene therapy, and it was commercialized in less than 12 months, and it's one of the most widely used medical technologies in the world at this point, right? It's probably in the top it 20 is. or something. It Aspirin is. is probably higher, but this one is in the top 20. And so it's here. It's happening now. And so if you, anyone had any question like, oh, are these things real? Well... They're very they real. Are. They're yeah. very real. Now, on the moral and ethical questions, right, just to press a little bit more, mm -hmm. I, I, the standard objections, and I've seen many of them, and they come to mind easily for most people who think about this. I agree with your point that many of them are just complaints about life, not mm -hmm. about life extension, mm -hmm. about the concentration of power or the concentration of wealth and these various forms of equity. Listen, if you have complaints about our world, then mm -hmm. you'll say, well, why should we make our world last any longer? It's a little bit of a... Uh, an unfair criticism of life extension. If I would like to live longer, it seems like it'd be a nice... And then, then the other part of it is the social institutions. Yeah, they will change, but they do change, and we've watched them change a lot over time, and we build the institutions, I think, that we like. And, and for me, I'm, I'm very much on board with that. There's one aspect that I want to press on with you a little bit, though, is mm -hmm. the equity of life extension. Who will live the longest? We already have some big gaps in mm -hmm. our world today. Yeah. And perhaps these new technologies, these rare, initially rare new technologies, will make some people superhuman and other people leaving far behind. Well, first of all, what I wanted to say is that I'm not suggesting to ignore concerns of all these people. I'm actually like, I took them as my own, right? Because, and my thought and promise to myself, I don't want to bring the version of life extension to this world if majority of people don't really want to use it. So I do, I'm taking this like super seriously. I'm still struggling, but I'm trying to solve all this issue, at least in my mind, to be able to communicate effectively on, on all these uh, things. So then the question about equal access to that. Remember, you know, all these examples of like affordable ultrasound devices or, you know, this cancer uh, test which costs 19 to like $49 depending on whether it's liquid biopsy or anything else. Well, that's for me the beauty of that. So the change will come not from the old system doing new things. The change will come from new players doing completely different things. Like think about, I'm always using like a mobile phones, you know, cell phone example. 30 years ago, it was at least $10,000. It was like pretty heavy and it was not available for everyone. Yeah, famously, but, McKinsey yeah. predicted there would only be 1 million mobile phones uh, yeah. in the world. In the world. Uh, yeah. yeah. But then, like, I think it was two years ago, I went to Shenzhen, electronic market, kind of huge city in China, 15 minutes from Hong Kong. And like for $9, you can buy a working version of smartphone. Well, well this is what's, what's going to ha happen. I don't think there is anything that is currently in development which makes a uh, healthcare system more expensive or brings more inequality to, the, to this world. I actually do believe that longevity and longevity technologies is one of the few themes which can make our world and our countries more united 
rather than divided. I do believe that democratization is an irresistible force in technologies, mm -hmm. and, I, and but it, it but it always feels like it's not going fast enough, and it's often an objection. One place where I feel that it may not be so easy for the waterfall is with gene editing. A lot of our gains in longevity have happened in early life. You know, just in the first couple of years, infant mortality has been the biggest driver of making the average lifespan longer. And I suspect looking at the technologies, even the ones that we've been talking about, uh, it's again in early life, maybe preconception and in the very yeah. first years of life that I think huge impact could be made through things like gene editing to help more people win that genetic lottery. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that in this coming few decades, there'll be a generation of people who have been edited, and you and I were not. Yeah. You know, there'll be some kind of therapies we might be pursuing, mm -hmm. but to be born edited perhaps comes with some risks and perhaps comes with some huge advantages. Perhaps this is a generation that might live twice as long as even what we could achieve by battling disease. Yeah. I mean, that seems like an interesting topic. There'll be these kind of you know, these immortals that are born. humans? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, uh, well, a few things here. First of all, we tend to overestimate our importance in the course of evolution, right? You and I am all just like a small pieces in this whole history of human development. So, in a way, I actually don't really care whether what I'm working for is going to be relevant for me personally or for the next generation of our kids. So, I, this is me sharing the best of me with the world. Uh, so that's one. Uh, the second piece is, um, I think it's just an illustration that both science and technology is not going to work without ethics and without regulation. Well, that's why regulatory bodies all around the world are just looking at gene editing with uh, a lot of excitement but also fear. Uh, and I do believe that uh, the way it's usually start with a new technology, specifically the powerful one, you're going to find like a cases where it's just really immoral not to use it, like uh, kids with uh, massive uh, genetic disadvantages, when unless you apply this procedure, he or she is going to suffer through all his or her life. And this is where you start. Like people are criticizing Elon Musk for Neuralink right, for human brain, AI, or computer integration, but I'm like, I'm looking at where development of neurogenerative diseases and our ability to fight them are at the moment. We really still don't know, like, where Alzheimer's and dementia comes from. Mm. It's usually, it probably starts from early sciences, like, around 40s or 50s, but um, after fighting the war against cancer and heart disease, like, the next barrier, around 80 or 90 years, when we 80 or 90 years old, uh, is about neurogenerative diseases and uh, who knows might be supplementing or integrating our brain with um, computer power or artificial intelligence is the way to help these people because we've seen so many cases when your body is healthy but your brain is just not working properly. Yeah. How, how could you be the one to say no to someone suffering from terrible Alzheimer's? Yeah when there was a solution that was a digital enhancement that might help actually yeah, restore so that, and maintain. This is my thinking. So I'm not really looking at the version of the world where it's like available for, you know, to everyone and it's going to be like superhumans and like, you know, the older generation, like mm. two of us suffering from lack of access to that. So it's going to be cheap. It's going to be used in the, in the very good cases uh, of uh, enhancing people's life and, uh, 
uh, take this suffering and fear. Yeah, the journey to that kind of vision, because you're staking out a vision of the future, and that, that journey will be these kinds of incredible moments where, you know, it's a family that can actually count on one of their, you know, their, their father or mother or whatever, having just a longer productive, healthier yeah. time. I mean, it's yeah. really inspiring. I also want to make sure I ask you, uh, while we're still together, your secrets because many of the forces that we're talking about are out there. Oh, yeah. People are working, and you know, you're also working, and you're trying to help create some of these technologies and commercialize them, so they're happening. And as we spoke about a few minutes back, that there is a, a class of these oracles who are saying, I see this vision of the future, so I will have a beer at noon, and I will drink you know, sugary drinks and all that, because I don't need to do anything, the magic will come. But of course, you've been thinking about this deeply as a part of personal transformation as well. A, a lot of longevity gains have actually just come from better living. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole section of your book which is very lovely, but in some ways it's very tedious because you are just lecturing, yeah. hey, you shouldn't drink, you yeah. should exercise yeah. more, get yeah, enough sleep, true. all these, and these my are very familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're very that's familiar ideas. Yeah. But my favorite part, actually, my favorite part was what is in your medicine cabinet? Because this is something that most people don't know actually. They, they do know and they need some encouragement perhaps to exercise more, eat less sugar, mm -hmm. eat more vegetables. Okay, we know that. I will try and do that. But there are some secrets, I think. Just sitting there in front of everyone, all these supplements and vitamins mm -hmm. and things, some very powerful things that seem to have a lot of evidence for them. So I'm curious, what's in your cabinet and what's not yet in your cabinet that's helping you change, bend your curve? So I think you're right. I call it like, uh, so when I think about longevity, science and technology, I'm always thinking like in three horizons. So horizon one is your question today, like what we can do now. Horizon two, we just discussed it. This is, this is the technologies which are currently in development phase and going to be available to us in 10, 20 years from now. And they will actually help us to break this 122 years sound barrier and live to 150. They are this genetic engine therapy, organ regeneration, uh, longevity in the pill. And then, like, it's always even like a Horizon 3, which is 25 to 50 years from now, world of human avatars, Internet of Body, human brain, AI integration. But I'm not concerned about this. This is like really far away. So, what do I do now? I always talk in a framework of five longevity buckets, and some of them we covered today. Like, when I have actually, when I have 30 seconds on longevity, I just push people to, the, to do their annual medical checkup. And it should be as comprehensive as possible. This is not a rocket science. Just see your doctor and ask, like, what is the best way to do early diagnostic of heart disease, cancer, diabetes? And this is like 70, 75% of the tests after the age of 50. So that's, that's super important. Second is like bad habits. Tobacco smoking is statistically minus 10 years from your life using seat belts and just behaving in a safe way, just another plus two, plus three years. Statistically, like I had an opportunity, so I went to North and South Pole in the last five years. But when I had an opportunity to climb Mount Everest, like the highest mountain on earth, I realized the like mortality risk there is above six percent. And like at the father of four, yeah, uh, okay, yeah, come on, no, but Sergey, Sergey, you're telling us some obvious things right okay. now. Tell me about the medicines in your cabinet. Okay. Are you taking NAD? What about resveratrol? Yes, okay. what, what are the yeah, magic okay. supplements? There? Um, supplements. Um, First of all, I love supplements for one very simple reason. 30 or 40% of the impact of supplements is placebo effect. And I'm like typical placebo man. So if I believe something is working for me, even if like there's no statistical evidence, it kind of works. Well, that's the beauty of like psychological 
uh, approach to aging. So I mean, if you have your target, uh, I'll come back to supplements in a second. So if you have your target age, which is below your calendar age, you're gonna be younger. Like my mantra, like every morning I repeat that I'm gonna be living 200 years in the body of 25 years old man. And since I started to do that, it was just amazing transformation in my body in terms of my approach to life, level of energy. Imagine like every morning I wake up and three-fourths of my life is ahead of me. That changed a lot. So, so first point about supplements, it's um, just about placebo. So, you know, and whether you want it or not, it works this way. So I'm really, like, really supportive of people yeah, taking supplements. So what do I do? There's a new category, like there's old, old kind of supplements that we know for decades, like omega-3. I take it because my cholesterol level is pretty high, so it's just the easiest way to do it. It's also very good for the brain health. So that's one. I take, uh, they do now amazing non-adore version of garlic supplements. And they're like super important for your, for the health of your heart system and your vessels as well. So this is, uh, I do that as well. I'm a big fan of seaweed and I do, I actually managed to find like six different types of seaweed supplements. Some of them I just buy from Japan because they like big fans of them. Uh, well, that's why they have the longest living uh, people on the planet. So I rotate seaweeds, like so my, within six months, like every month I'm changing the type of seaweed that I take and uh, supplement. So in terms of the... Well, what about these famous ones, resveratrol? Yeah. Are you taking it as a supplement? Uh, no, resveratrol, I, uh, I'm i not sure to what extent it works. There was uh, quite a bit of controversy about that. But remember placebo effect, so I take it for a month, every six months. I so see. I'm with that. The and red wine pill, it was yeah, famous yeah, yeah. about that, and it's yeah. unclear the result. Yeah. yeah. So, and then what about this one, NAD plus yeah, so the cellular like NAD, reconstruction? Like, there's a number of longevity supplements coming to the market uh, today, and um, majority of them, like Elysium Basis uh, or Anaman, they're basically NAD plus boosters. And funny enough, I've heard a lot of evidence of this working for so many people. Like, um, I just had a discussion with Peter Diamantes. He's like, Sergey, when I started to take Anaman, then the number of push ups that I do increased like, by 50% in the course of month. And he so felt I'm an the, immediate impact from it. Well, it's, it's one month, wow. but like in human life terms, it's almost immediate. So yeah. immediate. So I like the idea of taking Anaman and I, I'm taking uh, like sublingual version of that. I, I think it's for um, like a tablet, thousand milligrams in total every morning. So I do that. But like Anaman, uh, yeah, I spoke to David Sinclair or Eric Verdon, the head of Buck Institute of Aging uh, in California. There seems to be a common belief that like, if you're really in supplements, you can take Anaman. I would advise to take uh, like Anaman because it's closer to boosting yeah. energy rather than like Elysium basis. I see. But I'm pretty sure Elysium will come up with this version. Some other product. version. Yeah. Very soon. So the full list, perhaps you have put it on SergeyYoung.com. Yeah, actually, I, I do have like ten recommended longevity supplements. Again, it's very individual. So I mean, I would advise people to see their doctors to discuss their mm. supplement routine because I don't really know what particular unique conditions people have. But like for average per healthy person, mm. uh, I have at least ten. Uh, sorry, ten uh, supplements that I. I recommend, but the whole like ritual of just taking them from the bottles and putting them in my like daily doses, I just use it as an opportunity to you know send all the positive energy 
of being youthful and healthy to my supplements, so I consume that. For me, it's almost like a energetic exercise. I'm enjoying yeah. this, and it's a good way to meditate. Well, clearly, step one is buy the book because you go into a lot of this content in a really appealing and accessible sort of way. I thought the book was really wonderful. It's awesome that you have put up some of these resources on your website so that people can go through and, and look at some of these things systematically. And then I guess they'll have to look at your picture online every few months and see how much younger you keep becoming. But you have to tell me the truth just as we're finishing yeah. here. Yeah. Do you color your hair or not? Uh, no, I don't. Because it's miraculous. Oh, you do really? look like you're 25, Sergey. Yes. Funny enough, so there was a number of experiments of like age reversal. So what they do in combination to NMM and forming some other routines, I don't want to like tell about this here because people tend to try to repeat it and, I, and this is what I don't want them to do. It was a scientific experiment with a group of like nine people and they actually they took like a growth hormone for the organ called thymus here and the one who is responsible for our immune system. So they managed to reverse aging by one and a half, two years for this group in the course of one year. But funny enough, like the, your skin and your uh, hairs are like the first one to change. So probably, you know, going through this all so-called boring stuff like a diet, physical exercise, meditation, a lot of sleep, well, zero bad habits. It, it works in, in terms of the way you, you appear. But just a final comment on that one. I do think you've seen like a number of religious people. I don't know whether it's Dalai Lama or you know whatever kind of church you you take from, or, or people with a big mission. They all look younger, brighter, and uh, full of energy. They're almost like shining. So actually finding your sense of purpose in life and being relevant in the social context, sharing the best of you with the world, helping other people. It's like the best thing to be become younger and grow young. Incredible. Incredible. Sergey, thank you so much for spending time talking to me about your research and the way you're living your life. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, everyone. Stay healthy and happy, please. Thanks for tuning in to In The Now. Next up, we'll be doing more interviews with some of the folks helping me shape the next big chapter. What comes after Notel? What's important? What innovations do we care about? Tune in, subscribe, give us a star rating.